Philippians 2, 4 through 11. Each of you should not look only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Well, thank you, uh, Keaton, and thank you, Sue. Uh, I was 15 years old, and I was sitting in a classroom uh, with a bunch of people who knew more about the Bible than I did. And I had just become a, a Christ follower a year before. And, and so I was really wanting to learn and really wanting to know about my faith in Christ. And uh, the, the person who was sharing up front began talking about the Incarnation and when I first heard that, I, my eyes kind of got wide, and I was kind of like, what's going on here? Is this teacher teaching the right kind of stuff? Uh, this kind of sounds weird. I mean, isn't this that Eastern stuff, incarnation? Now, I knew enough that carnation wasn't, incarnation wasn't the carnation instant milk drink, uh, but I didn't know that uh, it was different than reincarnation. And I, so I actually raised my hand, and, uh, and I, I said, hey, um, are, are, I, don't, I don't think we believe this stuff. And then the teacher was like, no, yeah, we know the gospel is, is, uh, includes the incarnation. I said, but isn't that that stuff that you know, people in India and Hindus believe? And she said, oh, no, 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 no. And then uh, she explained it to me that... Uh, reincarnation was different than incarnation. Reincarnation is uh, spirit taking on a bodily form over and over and over. The incarnation is talking about the great spirit, God, taking on flesh one time, <laughs> once and for all. And, uh, and so this is about uh, divinity with hum- humanity, the union of that in Jesus Christ. And so I was much relieved uh, when, she, when she explained that to me, and, and I hope you're relieved to, to know that. That's, if, if you didn't know, that's where we're going. And, and of course, uh, you know, if, if you stop people and you ask about that word, you know, it uh, has that, that, that root, carn, and uh, C-A-R-N, and, you know, if you think about carnal or carnivore, uh, carnivores eat flesh. So, you know, you can kind of deduce, you know, if you sat and thought about it, you could probably go, yeah, it's something about flesh. And so this is the idea and the thought and the word that's used that God took on flesh. John 1.14, the word became flesh. It's not reincarnation. So the incarnation is a part of the gospel. And, and I just wanted to just say that Without the incarnation, the crucifixion and the resurrection lose their power. They have no power without the incarnation. Uh, they wouldn't mean anything. And so uh, just to let you know, if, if you ever get confused and kind of wonder what, what is the gospel about, just remember these three simple things, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. The incarnation is about the life of Jesus, the life of Christ, 
he came to come and be near us. And he uh, put on flesh and he taught and he taught us about the kingdom of God. That's about the life of Jesus. The crucifixion is life in Jesus. Just talked about life of, but the crucifixion is life in Jesus because it's in that act that we find life. He, took, he died the death that we should have died. So, and then we come to the resurrection, which is life with Jesus because he didn't remain on the cross but he, and he didn't remain in the tomb, but he rose from the dead. And with that, when he ascended to heaven, he ascended so that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, could come and dwell with us. And so we are not alone. We are not orphans. We've been adopted into a family, and the Spirit is with us. So this is all part of the gospel. Incarnation, life of Jesus. Crucifixion, life in Jesus resurrection life with jesus so just to know and we're all clear now the incarnation is a part of the gospel a very important part and we'll talk more next week about how if it hadn't happened and and god uh jesus being fully god fully man the implications of that and why that is so important We'll, we'll talk about that next week but today i really want to talk about the great links what keep read to you was about Jesus uh, being elevated to the, to the highest place, given the highest name. And really, this was the place that he was at all along with God the Father. And so when he came and uh, took on flesh and the appearance of man, and he came, that was quite a journey. God went to great lengths to come. And Jesus, when he came, he came to show us everything about the Father, He did and said everything that the Father wanted him to. Oh, how I wish I could say that. How I wish I could say that, but I can't. There's so many times where I've just missed it. I didn't know what he was wanting me to do, and I didn't do it. And then there were times when I did know what he wanted to do, and I I didn't want it. I was just totally rebelling against what God wanted. But Jesus didn't live that way. Again, he lived the life we should have lived. Not only died the death we should have died, but he lived in perfect harmony with the Father, living as the Father intended us to live. So God appeared in a body. 1 Timothy 3.16 states it that way. God appeared in a body. I don't know of a more amazing, incredible statement than that. That God came. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. And this is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. God appearing in a body. Jesus not grasping at his equality with God, but making himself nothing, being made in human likeness. The... the um, New American Standard says it this way, says that Jesus emptied himself. Now, sometimes that's, that gets into weird theological discussions, uh, but that is the most literal translation. And, and, but our English language, when we think of empty, that, that gives some strange implications. The New uh, Living uh, Translation says that he gave up his divine privileges, which is probably a, a better English translation for us and maybe where our minds are in American culture right now. But... When he came as a man, and and not just any man, he took on the nature of a servant. High king of heaven comes to earth, 
taking on a body, the body of a man who lived like a servant. That is a great distance that he came. Now, in thinking about this great distance that that Jesus came, we just need to think about this. Uh, God coming as man, God taking on a body. You know, the Bible says that we are made in, in God's image. Um, and that, that's a pretty good thing, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing that uh, our creator, our maker, decided to shape us in his likeness. And so there, there is some dignity in who we are as just being human beings and human life because we are made in his image. But it also says in the Bible that we are made a little lower than the angels. A little lower than the angels. Now, when I think of angels and stories of angels in the Bible, I, I, I think of some pretty powerful beings, you know. Uh, uh, but they, they not only were powerful, but, but they, they did these strange things. I mean, they were ministering spirits, Hebrews says, uh, sent to minister to those who inherit salvation. Uh, but yet they could take on uh, a bodily form. You know, they met Abraham and Sarah and talked with them and told them about the baby. Uh, then there was uh, the angels that pulled lots and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah, physically taking them. So uh, they had this ability to be in the spirit world but still uh, take on form. And, and like, you know, that's pretty cool, you know. But we don't have that power, do we? Mm. No, we're made a little lower than the angels. So uh, even though uh, those of us who who've uh, said yes to Jesus, we are his servants. Uh, we don't have that kind of servant power as, as angels do. But, but still, we're, we're in that, close to that category. And that's kind of cool, a little lower than the angels. But uh, the Bible goes on and describes us a little more. And uh, this next one is, is uh, kind of interesting. Uh, uh, you know, being made in God's image, a little lower than the angels, that doesn't sound too bad. Uh, but then the Bible goes on and compares us uh, to an animal, um, and that animal is a sheep. Um, sheep are sort of limited as animals. I, I don't know how much you know about them, but I, I mean they're not particularly strong, uh, c- powerful, or, or courageous. Uh, you know, in fact, they're they're kind of known as helpless creatures uh, because you know they're not they're not really known to be very smart. And they have to be led to just get the things that help them survive uh, and live. You know, they have to be led to their food, led to their water. They, they don't know how to survive very well on their own. Now, the Bible calls us the sheep of his pasture. And, and I go, that's, why did you pick that animal, God? Boy. You know, it, we're the sheep of his pasture, not the lions of his savanna or the dolphins of his sea. I mean, he didn't choose very clever creatures in, in a comparison. And so, uh, you know, there are moments when we look at human actions, human thought, human deeds, and we go, we indeed are like sheep. We are pretty ridiculous sometimes. And so, you know, when you think of the humility of Jesus to take on the body of a man who acts like a sheep sometimes, you think about the great distance. And not only a man, and, and not, he, he didn't come as a kingly man, a powerful man, but instead he came as a servant. You can kind of see more the idea of, of this great distance that God came to appear in a body. But, you know, it's, it's more, the incarnation is more 
than just the, like uh, comparing to uh, uh, a person on the second level or top level coming down to level one or the lower level. It's more than that. It's more than just, you know, sometimes we, we look at ants and we go, oh, there's some sort of something or other. They, 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 they socially gather, they work together, they have this order, and, uh, and, but we can't communicate with them. So I guess, you know, it's like that. You know, God, you know, had to come down to ant level and, and deal with us, you know, and be able to communicate to us. It's more than that. It's more than that. You know, Jesus said that God is spirit in John chapter 4, and his worshipers worship him in truth and in spirit. But God in spirit is different than us. We, we were made with flesh. We're actually a hybrid. We're flesh and spirit, aren't we? We're, we're this strange hybrid that God made. And, uh, but God is spirit, and his domain is not the domain we live in. His domain is the kingdom of heaven. Our domain is earth. And it's two different worlds. It's two different dimensions, uh, so to speak. It is, you know, it's true that the man has tried to communicate with God since the beginning of time, building pyramids, uh, temples, creating all kinds of rituals, all very unsuccessfully. You see, God appearing in body is more like Shakespeare making contact with Hamlet. See, there's no way Hamlet could ever succeed at making contact with Shakespeare. But Shakespeare could write himself into the story and introduce himself to Hamlet, couldn't he? Do you know that there's an author who actually did this once? Uh, Dorothy Sayers uh, actually did this in one of her novels. She was developing a character, uh, a male character, that she ended up loving so much that she decided to write herself into the novel and have herself fall in love with the character. And that's what God did with us. And that's exactly, not only coming near, but he brought his world into our world. Not only God was, was God taking bodily form in Jesus and coming near, but his kingdom was taking bodily form and coming near. What were the first things that God appearing in body said? Change, for the kingdom of heaven is near at hand. Jesus proclaimed this to the world. God appearing in body. The Son emptying himself of all divine privileges, coming as a man is like an author writing himself into the story he created. But think about it. Pretend that that you are Hamlet. Pretend that you're a character in a story that Shakespeare wrote. And someone comes to you who tells you that his name is Shakespeare and that you are, you have sprung from his imagination, that he created everything around you, that he knows where this story is going. And not only can he help guide you through this story and get you to the end of the story, but he can help you transcend the story and enter his world, the world of the author. If you ran into somebody like that today, you would say, you are off your rocker. You are nutty. That's what you would say. But think about it. That's what God appearing in a body had to do. That's what he was up against to try to convince us that he was here for us, that he was drawing near to help us, to rescue us, to save it. So think about it. If, if you were a character in a story and the author came to introduce himself to you, a Shakespeare, would you? 
Could you be convinced? What would it take Shakespeare to prove to Hamlet that he was his creator? And that, again, is why God took such a long time, went to such great lengths to come to us. It happened a long time ago, going to great lengths, making a way for the Son in his moment of appearing. And the Scriptures say it was just at the right time. At the right time. So for God to do what he was going to do, to introduce himself to us, the author of salvation, to introduce himself to the characters in this story, he needed to introduce faith. He needed to introduce walking by faith and not by sight. How did he do that? Well, most people knew a long time ago, 6,000, 10,000 years ago, or even further ago, they knew that they had a common knowledge that we were distant from our Creator because of our sin. And so God had to introduce something more, that introduced him more than just a distant Creator God, something that was more about being sure of what you hope for, certain of what you do not see. So God chose a man named Abraham. Out of all the people on the planet, he chose Abraham. It's not so much why he chose Abraham, but what he was trying to do through Abraham that's important. He told him to leave everything that was familiar, to go to a place that God would show him. And Abraham believed God, and he went. He left. And then God needed to introduce a promise a God-sized promise called a covenant that could be between a God and a person. So he promised Abraham and he would give him descendants and land. And even though Abraham and his wife were beyond childbearing years, Abraham believed. And because of that belief, God said that he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham didn't do anything but believe and act upon that belief. And this was a new way of relating to God. It was called faith. It wasn't ritual, it wasn't religion, which up to this time the world was pretty familiar with already. Do these things and God will approve of you. Instead, believe and follow. Now God's promise to Abraham was good for all of Abraham's children and the children who believed the promise walked in that same faith and walked in the blessing from God. God was establishing not just something with one man, but with a family that lived by faith. But he still wanted to get even closer. So how was he going to get closer? How was he going to reveal more of himself? So the descendants of Abraham ended up in Egypt. And the children who believed the promise walked, uh, walked in Egypt and, and for a time. And, and, but there was contrast between this family of faith and the Egyptians who lived by rituals and, and uh, uh, religious uh, actions. And, uh, and after that conflict, uh, the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites who this family of faith were now being called. Nearly half a million slaves for over 400 years till they multiplied and they were a million. The promise of God for Abraham and his descendants to have a land of their own, a place, that seemed very far away. But God raised up a leader. He raised up a man named Moses who became a constant intercessor. And through him, God delivered the family of faith out of Egypt. He made his presence visible with a cloud by day and a fire by night. Again, helping people in this idea of trying to live by faith and not by sight. God was very kind. He said, I'll give you something, something a little bit to, to recognize my presence. And so this, this cloud, in fact, uh, 
he, he told them, I, I, I want to dwell with you, so you need to build a, a big tent. We'll call it a tabernacle, and uh, I will dwell in it. And so he, he builds, uh, has the people build this tent and lets them know that he is a God who wants to be near. He wants them to be his family, but he also wanted to let them know that he was a holy God who would only have contact with people who would, make them, who would be holy. So God gave these instructions, and it's so interesting when you think about this. Think about being a kid growing up at this time. Growing up with the Israelites, you're in a camp, uh, and your mom says to you, now, now son or, or daughter, if you ever get lost, just look, look, look up in the, over in, in the, around the horizon, and you'll see this great cloud. But, and if it's nighttime, it'll be a pillar of fire. And when you see that, just know that we are always to the east of that. That's where our camp is at because all the Israelites camped in a great big circle around the tabernacle. And then your, your mom or your dad saying to you, now son or daughter, I just want you to know that if you see that cloud starting to rise and it's starting to move, you run home because we've got to pack up. It's time for us to move our tents and follow wherever God is going to lead us. I mean, that, that was the signal. It was time to move. So imagine... You know, you're playing ball in the neighborhood and your ball goes rolling up next to the tabernacle little tent wall, whatever you call it. It was, it was made out of sheepskin or whatever, but, but your ball ran up to it. Would you be a little nervous? You know, God, God lives over there. I'm, I'm close to God's yard. Or what if you, you kicked the ball and it went over into the tabernacle? It had a kind of a yard where the altar was. It wasn't the tent. It wasn't the actual tabernacle. But what if your ball went in there? I mean... Would you dare each other to go in there? Would you be scared? Or, or, or would it be like, oh, cool, I get to go into God's yard, you know? I don't know what that was like, but God lived in the neighborhood. God came close, and this was really close for the Israelites. And it was a new way of living, learning how to follow God, to trust Him. And it was, it was a difficult journey. And as God lived with them, he, he prescribed that they should come to him and come to the tabernacle with sacrifices. And only select intercessors could come into the tabernacle. And, and they always came bringing a sacrifice to atone for their own sins and for the people's sins. And so this one intercessor be, be, was, was the high priest who could only come into the holy place where God's presence dwelt. So God, at this time, he has, a, he has a family of faith demonstrating to the world that God can deliver them. And though he is a holy God, they can come close to him through someone interceding for them and offering sacrifice for their sin, a high priest. So God is revealing more about himself and how he wants to interact and how we can draw close. And then God leads his people into the land that was promised to their forefather Abraham. Priests led the way into this place, but God wanted to get closer than just a tabernacle. So he allowed the people's desire for a visible leader, a king, to be granted. And one of the descendants in the family of faith was a man named David. God raised him up to be a king, a leader after his own heart. And David was a man that desired to serve God. And he desired to see him. If you read the Psalms, you'll see those words. But David was a warrior poet, a king who ruled his people well. And God extended his covenant to David, saying he would have a descendant on the throne over the family of faith forever. Forever. How do you do that when you're a man? How do you do that even if you have sons and grandsons that follow you? How do you have an eternal throne? And how do you have someone sit on that? That's a problem. But it was a promise. 
God was going to figure out how to answer that promise. And he had a plan from the beginning how to answer that promise. But David, even though it was a puzzle to him, believed, trusted, and he helped build a permanent dwelling, a temple, instead of a tabernacle that was established. God was preparing the way, a family of faith, a king and a kingdom, a temple with an intercessor, making it possible for God to dwell near. But God wanted to get even closer. You know, kings came and went after David, and the family of faith struggled with living by faith. Sight was so much easier, and their hearts strayed to false gods. Kings were unfaithful, people were unfaithful, so God sent prophets who told and delivered a message to the people from God. And they told the people and they told kings to turn back to God. They, and they would for a time. They would turn back, but then the prophet died or would leave, and the people would turn away from faith in God. And this went back and forth, back and forth. And God continued to send his prophets. And they not only, not only turned people's hearts back to God, but they told of a coming righteous king, a prophet and priest. God told them of a time that he would remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. But so much time had passed. It was hard to live by faith instead of sight. The temple fell into disarray. The kings were unfaithful to God along with the people. So God sent other nations to punish his people, taking them away from their place, destroying their temple. And they began to wonder, what, what is God doing? We've, he said he was wanting to draw near. He was wanting to make a people for himself, but now he's destroyed every way to draw near to him. What is God doing? Those who weren't destroyed spent 70 years of captivity in another nation, a whole lifetime whole lifetime but God hadn't forgotten his promise and the people that he wanted to come near to so God caused the foreign kings to release his people and send them back to their land with supplies to rebuild the temple and the city of the temple and the people they definitely learned their lesson this time you know from that point on the family of faith the Jews the Hebrew people they never worshipped a foreign god again They never worshipped idols again after that. They were marked by that time in history. They were faithful to a system of priests and the temple. They were faithful to the word of prophets of the past. But that's what it became. Just messages from the past because all of a sudden there were no more messages from God. God wasn't communicating with them anymore. They had the promises of a coming king, a coming priest, a coming prophet, but where was he? They believed, but there were no more prophets. There were no more messages from God. Everything went silent. Silent for 400 years. God appeared in a body, and uh, he worked a long time, went to great lengths to do that. And, it, and uh, he made his announce- announcements, made his preparations long in advance so that you would be convinced that it was him. He did it long before John the Baptist said, prepare the way. He did it long before the angels announced a birth of a baby in a stable. 
He did it long before the prophecies of Isaiah saying that a child would be born of a virgin. 4,000 years before he came, he was laying the groundwork. That's a pre-announcement. Buddha never had that. Muhammad never had their birth pre-announced, let alone what the conditions were of their birth and where it was be, where it would be. But he came and he did that. He went to those great lengths to convince you that he came to be near, to come close. And he's changed everything. There is no more temple. There is no more sacrifice. There are no more priests. Jesus is the temple to end all temples. He's the priest to end all priests. He's the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He came to do that so that we could live by faith and not by sight, to walk with him so that he could dwell within us. And that's good news, and that's really good news. And so uh, if someone asks you about celebrating Christmas, uh, do, does your family celebrate Christmas? You can say, yeah, we, uh, we celebrate the incarnation. You can throw out that big word, see what happens. Yes, we, we celebrate the arrival. We celebrate the arrival. Arrival of who? And you can, you can uh, maybe enter in some in interesting conversations with people.